Welcome to another edition of the GW Regulatory Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Thompson at the Regulatory Studies Center. Joining me today is Susan Dudley. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Nate. Susan is the director and founder of the GW Regulatory Studies Center and an expert in economics and regulation. From 2007 to 2009, she was the White House's regulatory czar, serving as administrator of OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Now, Susan, just a few days ago, you had filed comments with the Office of Management and Budget on their draft circular A4. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what A4 is and why it's important? Um, sure. Thanks, Nate. Presidential executive orders for more than 40 years now have called for analysis of regulatory impacts and Circular A4 provides guidelines to agencies for conducting that analysis before their regulations are issued. So it was um, issued in 2003 and built on previous guidance from the Clinton and Reagan administrations. Um, and let me just read you a little quote um, from a, a primer on Circular A4 from the Obama administration. The important goals of regulatory analysis are one, to establish whether federal regulation is necessary and justified to achieve the social goal. And two, to clarify how to design regulations in the most efficient, least burdensome and most cost-effective manner. A4, the focus is on social welfare or efficiency, which provides important input for regulatory policy decisions. That doesn't mean that policy officials base decisions solely on the result of that regulatory impact analysis, but it is an important factor for significant regulations. Yes, and this has been guiding and coordinating policy evaluation across the federal agencies, and it's been in use for about 20 years now. Uh, what kind of changes did you see in the brand new draft that came out in April? Well, regulatory impact analysis has become much more sophisticated since its early days in the 1970s but the basic principles remain the same. They involve a problem statement, understanding benefits and costs of different alternative actions, and trying to maximize the net benefits. So the, making sure that benefits exceed and justify the costs. But they also recognize that not everything can be quantifiable. So the goal is to improve social welfare um, based on efficiency. So essentially increasing the size of the pie. Um, what we have seen is improvements in measurement, um, including quantifying improvements in public health, environmental quality, et cetera. Um, those I think were largely captured in the 2003 draft. Um, and this draft doesn't expand upon those tools very much it does place much more emphasis on who receives the benefits and who bears the costs or the distributional impacts. So um, as I mentioned that um, benefit cost analysis, regulatory impact analysis has focuses on increasing the size of the pie, but um, this guidance also focuses on how the slices are allocated. And that's, that's a high priority of President Biden and it is important. Other things that the revised draft touch uh, change are when regulation is necessary, how to account for impacts that occur in different times and geographic areas, how the analysis should reflect more recent appreciation that we humans don't always behave the way simple textbook economic models assume, 
um, and what to assume in the face of uncertainty. That's really helpful to know. Uh, so your comment had addressed both points and then quite a bit more, honestly. It was uh, very extensive coming in at 27 pages. Uh, so let's touch on a few of, of the main themes that you highlighted. Uh, first, how does the draft circulars guidance on when regulation is appropriate compared to the previous guidance? Um, first, I'll note, Nate, that six of those 27 pages are just references. <laughs> so 21 pages is still rather long. Um, so when regulation is appropriate, the executive order 12866, um, which President Clinton issued um, in um, in 1993, directs agencies to issue only regulations that, quote, are required by law, are necessary to interpret the law, or are made necessary by compelling public need, such as material failures of private markets to protect or improve the health and safety of the public, the environment, or the well-being of the American people. Now, the draft goes beyond those conditions. It directs agencies to regulate, to override individual choice if models indicate that the individuals are wrong. That's the behavioral aspect we talked about. Um, it expresses a willingness to override state, local, and territorial preferences more than it did before. And it abandons the presumption against regulations that set prices. And that's despite evidence that those types of regulations end up supporting special interests and harming workers and consumers. So I'd say uh, on this, in the problem statement, I think the guidelines lack the humility that was implicit or is implicit in Executive Order 12866, which I guess we haven't mentioned yet, but that has guided agencies, both analysis of regulations and the way they develop regulations since the Clinton administration. I think implicit in the executive order is, yeah, people can make bad decisions, but officials in Washington don't always get things right either. And I think that humility is lacking. Yes, that humility is certainly important. And whenever we talk about unintended consequences, I know that that's an important uh, point that you were- Exactly, yeah. Uh, so you had also said that understanding these distributional effects is a real big change a departure from previous practice. And, and what is involved there? Yeah, so welfare economics, which forms the basis of regulatory impact analysis, focuses on efficiency and achieving the greatest overall good for society. It doesn't have much to say about how those gains are distributed among segments of society. So back to the pie analogy, increasing the size of the pie but not so much about who pays for the pie and who gets what slices. So there's long been a reg recognition that we do care about that though. You know, many regulations are explicitly about distribution, providing safety nets for more vulnerable people like Medicaid, school, nutrition programs, et cetera. Yet the prior guide guidance, the 2003 version, only mentions that briefly. There are only two paragraphs devoted to that. And this guidance offers five pages, most of which I think is very good and provides agencies needed guidance for understanding the distribution of benefits and costs. But there's one section that goes into an optional calculation of placing weights on the actual benefits, costs, or transfer payments. 
And my comment argues that's a bad idea for a variety of reasons, including that it embeds normative factors in a non-transparent way and risks getting captured by special interests to the harm of the very people it's supposed to benefit. Uh, indeed, uh, regular listeners of the podcast will remember just recently our previous episode, we had Mary Sullivan on, our, a visiting scholar at the center. And Mary went into great detail about the problem and the challenges with the weighting and kind of the putting the thumb on the scale uh, of the economic analysis. Yeah. And, and you said the draft provides us guidance for the geographic and uh, time-related differences. And, and would you like to share more about that? Yeah, yeah. So first on the geographic scope, Previous guidance directs agencies to examine the impacts um, to the U.S., the effects on the U.S. And when international impacts are relevant, it says you can do a secondary analysis to understand those. The current, the new draft provides an option of only presenting international impacts. And since the U.S. regulations can't directly impose costs on people overseas, that comes down to counting benefits in other countries against costs to U.S. residents. I think that's inconsistent with the emphasis on understanding the distribution of benefits. And it's also often inconsistent with the statutory authority that agencies are operating under. Um, so I express concern about that in my comment um, that domestic regulatory agencies should not be inflicting net harms on the U.S in order to benefit other countries while hiding that fact from the public. Um, the second thing you mentioned, the time dimension, um, a regulation's benefits and costs don't all happen at the same time in the same year. So often costs are incurred in the near term and benefits occur in the future. And analysts use a discount rate to put those streams of regulatory impacts on equal footing to compare the benefits and the costs. You can think of that as like an interest rate. Um, so the old guidance directed agencies to conduct analysis using two rates, 3% and 7%. The revised draft just has one default rate, and that's 1.7%. And in my comment, I argue that we simply do not have that level of confidence in the precision of that discount rate. If you were to ask a dozen economists, you'd get more than a dozen estimates of what the appropriate rate should be. So my recommendation is that A4 should direct agencies to present estimates using a range because the choice of that discount rate has a huge impact on the resulting estimates. And decision makers and the public should be presented with a range of possible outcomes that show just how sensitive they are to the choice of that rate. And Nate, let me also note that the draft provides an alternative to using that default rate. Um, it involves complex modeling that most agencies do not have the sophistication or the capacity to conduct. And there's also broad disagreement in the economic literature about whether um, that kind of modeling is even appropriate. So I, I think the draft guidelines in that area are just not ready for agency use. Mm. Now that is, yeah, that does look like a very big change going from 3%, 7% to potentially this default rate of 1.7%. And 
I remember from our May 9th event with uh, former OIRA administrators that this had come up and it was pointed out that that 1.7 comes from um, looking back over the last 20 years of interest rate history in our country. And that was an extraordinary, extraordinary outlier considering the very low interest rate environment that we've had, yes. which- Yes, was, our um, visiting scholar Howard Beals filed a comment with OMB uh, and the discount rate when it was one of the main things he talked about. And he pointed out, as you just said, it was a period of unusually low rates, including negative interest rates. Yes, and we, there's no way we can expect that to happen right. in the future. Uh, so in addition to being a little esoteric, the, uh, the factor with these regulatory impact um, using a discount rate in these regulatory impact analysis. Um, you you brought to light that advancements in behavioral science and, and those can be captured in the draft circular. Yeah, the circular does address that. And that that is a, probably a change in the last in the last 20 years um, in economics. We see we have seen advancements. Um, we we joke about homo economicus that economic models often assume humans are rational beings and that we make trade-offs and decisions that are well thought out and in our own interests. But increasingly experimental research shows that that's not always true. We display behavioral biases. We rely on rules of thumb or heuristics to make decisions rather than a careful weighing of benefits and costs. And this draft circular reflects these understandings in a couple ways. One is in designing regulatory approaches that will actually work, um, directing agencies to take into account people's behavioral response to the inter intervention in thinking about how, how to regulate. And I think that's good. But the other is in deciding when to regulate. We mentioned that earlier, your first question, I think I talked about that. And I argue that that's a problem. When I was learning economics and the models didn't reflect reality, we went back to the drawing board to improve the models. This part of the guidance suggests instead, agencies regulate people's behavior to match their model. And if, if, if I have a couple more minutes, let me illustrate that with, um, with Department of Energy appliance regulations. So the model says that consumers should buy more expensive stoves, dishwashers, et cetera, because they'll save them money over the life of those appliances due to lower energy costs to, to run them. But now consumers can already buy those high-end appliances, but many still choose to buy the, the cheaper ones. And here's where the modeling comes in. If your model assumes that one, consumers are irrational if they're not buying the expensive one, and if you model the consumer's benefits and costs using a discount rate of 1.7%, or even the old rates of three or 7%, you would conclude that banning the consumer's preferred appliance will make the consumer better off. So not allowing them to buy what they choose when they're on the showroom floor. And the problem with that, that is that consumers may have very rational reasons for preferring the cheaper appliance. It might be the features, you know, the runtime of the dishwasher, for example, um, the ability to get your dishes clean or your clothes clean. You know, the old joke that now you have to flush your toilet twice. 
And the second part is it, you know, beyond the features is that most consumers can't borrow at 1.7% 1 adjusted for inflation. In fact, lower income families face much higher borrowing costs and are particularly hurt by these kinds of assumptions. So um, in my comment, I cited research that Regulatory Studies Center senior policy analyst Zoe Shia and I have done as well as others. Um, and I argue that before regulators override individuals' revealed preferences, they should provide evidence that individuals behave irrationally and don't learn in the specific situation covered by the proposed regulation. And that they should also acknowledge that government decision makers may suffer from similar, if not more problematic biases. Mm, it's really helpful to unpack those issues as, as the OMB and others at OIRA get ready to take a look at all of it that they gathered in through the public commenting period, which I understand is scheduled to be coming to a close as we speak. I, I looked into the regulations.gov and I saw that they have received quite a few public comments so far. Um, they should have much to think about. And there's much more in your own comments, um, but we are running long here. So was there anything in the big picture that you wanted to call out? Yeah, and I'll just reinforce what you said about the, um, if you go to regulations.gov, I've been looking at the comments that have been filed and it really has drawn a lot of expertise. There's a you know, MIT economists submitted comments there. There are quite a few very interesting comments on the record, um, including many from Regulatory Studies Center scholars. And I think there are still more to come on that front. Um, so yes, in response to your your question. My bottom line is I think the revised draft makes worthwhile changes, especially with respect to understanding the distributional impacts of regulations. But certain elements appear designed to steer analytical results to support this administration's policy preferences rather than present objective evidence and estimates to policymakers and the public. Regulatory analysis has a long nonpartisan history, and to the extent that the final circular is perceived as not being objective and nonpartisan, I fear that this exercise will open the door for the next administration to write its own revisions to support its policy preferences. And that will further polarize regulatory policy debates and reduce the value uh, of and trust in evidence-based analysis, which are things that I've spent my career working on. So I hope that my comments and those of, of all the others that are filed offer constructive recommendations for ensuring the integrity of regulatory analysis going forward. Absolutely. And safeguarding that analysis and that objectivity um, was really the overall theme that, that we titled your comment on at our website. And I would encourage everybody listening today to go to the website and read the full um, content of Susan's public comment. And you can find that at go.gwu.edu slash regstudies and click on publications. And um, as while you're there, check out all of the other great analysis that the center has been producing on the issue of the modernizing regulatory review actions. Um, I expect this will be a big topic for us uh, throughout the calendar year as that uh, commentary and, and insights are um, 
kind of digested over at OMB and at OIRA, and there'll be much more for us to talk about. So you can expect that the center will be taking a very close look at these uh, actions in motion. That's okay. right, Nate. The, um, the, the final version of A4 is, is due by April of 2024 and may well be out sooner than that. Um, we'll, we'll keep a close eye. Um, thank you so much, Susan, for being here today. And um, I look forward to welcoming everyone back for another episode of the Regulatory Studies Podcast very soon. Thank you.